Well, top of the morning to you. How are you? Living hole in a fractured world. A letter from James. You see these blocks. By the way, anybody here know how to do a Rubik's Cube? Out of several hundred last night, one kid, I think, knew how to. I can't do that. It makes me crazy. But the idea is when you get all these parts together, it makes a whole. So over these next nine weeks as we explore James, we're going to look at these various themes and go from there. Over the last few weeks, we have uh, had touch and goes on this idea of imagination. Uh, last week, Pastor Mac talked about God imaging us, creating us in his Im image. Last month, when we spoke from Psalm 139, we talked about this God who creates us, knits us together. He, he brings us into being by imagining us, if you will. When I think of imagination and speaking, I think of Dr. Peter Marshall, who back in the 1930s and 40s pastored New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., about 10 minutes from the White House. And he, had, he was a Scot, and he had this tremendous way of taking a piece, a story from the Gospels, and fleshing it out, sort of adding his imagination to what it might have felt like or smelled like or, you know, that sort of thing. And so the question is, this is a letter from James. Mike. My thought is, well, who's that? There are lots of James. I mean, James is a common name. So what I'd like you to do is imagine with me. I'm going to come over and sit in this chair in just a moment. And instead of being Richard Bruce Foth, I'm going to be James from 2,000 years ago. I'll just go sit in there. It isn't going to be a dramatic change, so don't, don't sweat the small stuff. But I'm just going to go over here and sit down, and I'll be James, all right? Shalom. When I was a kid, my parents called me Jimmy, all my siblings, but that's not my given name. My given name is Yaakov, which is a Hebrew word translated means James. I grew up in the hill country 2,000 years ago of what was then called Palestine, Syria, you know, as Israel. And uh, I grew up in a little town called Nazareth. A few hundred people. If I stood on the hill above my town, and if I could see a hundred miles, I would see the great city of Jerusalem. If I could see this way 25 miles, I would see a huge sea out there. If I could see this way 20 miles, and I could see this, and look down about a thousand feet, I would see a big lake. And that lake was called by various names, Kinnereth, Tiberias, some even called it a sea, like the Sea of Galilee. We was kids, we just called it the lake. Came from a good family. Uh, my father, uh, it, was a, it was a tight family. My father, Joseph, loved Torah, loved, I can hear him singing Torah, because that's what we used to do. Torah, those first five writings of Moses in the scriptures. I had siblings, I had Joseph and... Um, Judas and Simon, a couple of sisters, Lydia and Anna, and we were just a tight one God family because as Jewish people we had one God. The countries around us had a lot of gods and our, our history was we kept wandering off to those other gods. You can read about it. And the, the thing is we were a small country and we, and we lived in a bad neighborhood. 
we had all these big countries around us. So Egypt, they'd come in, they took us out for several hundred years. And then the Assyrians, they came down and they took a bunch of us out. And the Babylonians later came over from the east and they, they took us out. And now the Romans were in town. And so it, it was just that, that kind of, and we always had this hope. The, the, the story says that there would be a Messiah, an anointed one come, who would set us free and take the boot of the oppressor off of us. And we kept thinking about that for a long time. We'd sing about... Anyway, back to my family. My, uh, my dad was a builder. And uh, I did some of that, but my older brother actually did more of that than, than I did. Did I, did I mention that I had an older brother? Uh, uh, his name was Jesus. He was a sort of a half-brother. And he really did that stonemason carpentry thing well with my dad. I remember he used to, when they did a door frame or they did a table, he liked to get those joints just real, real tight. And he, he was very bright and he, he, a really strong conceptual thinker. He thought in big ideas and con I'm more of a picture guy. I, I see things more in, in pictures. But even as a kid, he was so inquisitive. We, we went to Passover one time, and of course there are tens of thousands of people down in Jerusalem. It's taken us days to get there. And we're on the way back, and they realize Jesus isn't with us. They lost him. They had to go back. It took him a couple days to find him. And when they found him, he's in the temple, and he's having these big discussions with the scholars. He's, he's only 12 for Pete's sake. Anyway, as, as he got older, when he got into his 20s, he'd go down by the lake some, take off some time, go down there, made friends with some young fishermen, and became sort of an itinerant teacher, which is what we do where we are over in that part of the world. You have small groups of people that follow you around. He, he did that, and then he had some very provocative ideas, some very strong, and, and the word kept coming back to us. He speaks with authority. And that was pretty good. And then, but then he started doing things like he'd touch people and they were healed and all. And when that happened, the religious leaders started pushing back. And, you know, we're his siblings. And, and, and they say, you know, he's doing these things. And then they start saying, you know, Jesus, the one from Nazareth, because there are lots of Jesuses in our part of the world. Jesus, the one from Nazareth, he's, um, we think he might be the Messiah. Well, when they said that, we were freaked out. I mean, we thought he was out of his mind. That's what we thought. So my mother, my brothers and I, we went to find him one day. He was teaching some folks, and they said, your mother and brothers are out there. And he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looked around and said, the people who are my mother and brothers are the ones who do the will of God. That's what he said. And that about split our family, about split our town. And, you know, I did not, whatever, I loved him, but I did not believe that he was the Messiah. That was out there until the religious leaders conspired with the political leaders to kill him and when they crucified him in that gruesome death that's only reserved for the worst criminals that just broke my heart and then <laughs> three days later he was back like he predicted and I I couldn't, I couldn't believe I saw him, and he was there in the flesh. It makes the hair stand up on my arms just to say it. Tears come to my eyes. I can remember hugging him, and from that moment on, I believed. And then a few weeks later, he went back to his heavenly father, and this thing called the early church started, and then persecution started, and they killed our friend Stephen. And then they started killing other people, and our group was scattered all over the Middle East, and I was a leader in the church. And after some time, there were so many strains, and the economics were bad, and there were droughts, and 
all kinds of things were going on that within the little congregations, people started squabbling and sort of running their mouths off at each other. And they weren't seeking wisdom in the way that they should. And they were losing, they were losing the sense of who they were. And I felt I needed to write a letter. And so I wrote them a letter just addressing some of those issues. Because when you're disconnected, it's hard enough, but when you're disconnected either within yourself or within your little group, it's even worse. So anyway, that's why I wrote the letter, and now I'm going to let this fellow Foth talk because he read the letter. And by the way, thank you for reading my letter. So that's James. The letter from James is not a rifle shot. The letter from James is a scattershot. It's, it's not like a treatise, so it's sort of a one-thought thing. It's much more of a conversation. You know how conversations are. You're talking about this, and then something else comes in. You go over there, and then you go over there, and then you come back to this. That's how the letter reads, and I encourage you to read it because you'll see that. It moves around in that way, and the goal of the letter, apparently, is that we live out our faith both in word and in deed. It's sort of a put-your-money-where-your-mouth-is letter, right? And the style of it is like James. It's candid, it's encouraging, and sometimes it's, bam, in your face. I like the part toward the end of the letter in chapter 4 where, it's, where he says this. By the way, it's a fourth paraphrase. By the way, your life is like a mist, and it's gone. So what you do now, how you act now, counts. You can read the letter of James out loud in 15 minutes. I encourage you to stand in front of the mirror. Just go for it. It'll be scary, but just read it right in front of the mirror. And it, Because when you read it out loud, you hear it in a different way. And also, out in the lobby and other areas, there are banners from the Bible Project. By the way, you can Google the Bible Project and see almost any book of the Bible done in animation in just like seven minutes. And so you can look at those banners, and that'll help too. So let's jump in. Here's James 1.1. I'm just going to read it to you. This is the greeting. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Then, here it comes, right out of the starting gates, he gets into it. And I'd like you to read it with me. Would you, would you read it out loud with me? It'll be on the screen. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I read that and I say, in the middle of trials, pure joy, really? Wow. Maybe there's another version that sort of softens that just a little bit on the edges. So let's look at the message, Eugene Peterson. It's a paraphrase of Scripture. Why don't you read this one out loud? With here's, here's another run in it. See if we can get a little relief from the pure joy piece. Here we go. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. If I want a faith, if I want a belief structure in me that really works, 
How do I get there? Well, James is really kind. He just, he just gave us a template, a pattern. Okay, those of you who sew and you use patterns or you do artwork and you stencil or whatever, this is a pattern. Here it is. It'll be on the screen. Here's how, here's how life works, okay? Trials are a testing of our faith, and when our faith is tested, that produces endurance or perseverance and ultimately makes us whole. We're going to leave that slide up just for a moment. I'm going to say it again. Trials, testings, are testings of our faith. They put stress on our faith that over time produces endurance or perseverance and in the end makes us whole. What this is saying, if I'm reading it correctly, and I've read it in two versions already, there are lots of other versions, it says the same thing, okay? The raw material for living whole in a fractured world is trials. Well, I, I got to tell you, I don't like that. I mean, I'd like to go through life without those. Trials, if you're taking notes, trials are a fact of life. I don't know that I know what whole feels like yet. I, I think embryonically I probably do. And endurance, I've done some of that. And faith, I hope that gets stronger. I don't know about all those things very intensely. What I know intensively about and extensively about is trials. Every human being knows <clears throat> trials in our bodies, trials in our emotions, in our minds, in our families, in our money, in our work, conflicts close and far. What's interesting about this word trial is that in this first chapter of James, it, it uses both trials and temptations, and it's the same word. It's the same word in the original language. I would, I would frame it this way. A trial is something exterior to me, some event, something that happens out here that impacts me, okay, some situation. A temptation is when that gets into the five and a half inches between my ears. Something happens out here. Let's say I've got a money problem, and then I start thinking about how do I solve that? Well, if I cut corners over here, then we can do that. And that's the difference between a testing or a trial out here and a temptation in here. And the, the verb that's used here is fun. And I'm not huge on verbs and nouns, but I like when I say fun. It's very interesting. It literally says when you fall into trials of many kinds, many colors, it says, or you're surrounded by trials... That verb fall is the same word that's used when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan back in Luke 10. It says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, fell among robbers, people who wanted to steal his life, his stuff. How do I respond when I find myself in circumstances that I think are trying to steal my life? How do I respond to that when I'm surrounded by that? Do we have any Marines in the audience? Anybody who's been a United States Marine, if you're here, raise your hand real high. I don't know if there's anybody. Oh, there we have one at least over here. Ed? Marine. I'm supposed to say hoorah at that point, but, the, but the, there's a famous Marine, the most iconic, most decorated Marine in U.S. history, um, finished his career as a three-star general. His name was Lewis Puller. His nickname was Chesty because he was barrel-chested guy. He was courageous, most decorated Marine in United States history. 
And he fought in World War II, fought in the Korean conflict. And during the Korean conflict, they had a huge battle at a place called the Chosen Reservoir. It was surrounded by 22 divisions of Chinese troops. And ostensibly, this is what Chesty Puller said when they were surrounded. We're surrounded, fellas. That simplifies the problem. They're in front of us, behind us. We are flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us 29 to 1. They can't get away now. <laughs> I, I love that quote. What if I came at my trials that way? What if instead of my trials saying, you want some of us, I say to my trials, you want some of this? What if that were to happen? Because the prescription here is intense joy is the prescribed response to trials, according to James. And I got to tell you, I say, you're kidding me, right? That doesn't make any sense to me. That makes about as much sense as his older brother, Jesus, saying when somebody does this, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other cheek. That's what it says. And I'm saying, What's, that sounds masochistic. What, you know, hit me again. You know, I deserve it or whatever. No, 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 no. When somebody does this and I turn the other cheek, I take the play away from them. It's like judo. I use their momentum for my advantage. Carry my pack a mile, a Roman soldier could say to somebody. And if this person carries it, it two miles, the first mile, the Roman soldier's in charge. Second mile, you're in charge. So this idea of my, my natural response is to run when I have a trial or a test or complain or whine or get mad or take a pill or worse, right? Used to have a friend, an older guy, who said, thank God for problems. And I asked his son just this week, I called his son and said, why did your dad always say that? He said, because he always saw that if you had problems, then you had some possibilities. Because decades ago, when I was a young pastor at the University of Illinois, somewhere into my mind, and I don't know where this came from, it wasn't overnight, I came to this idea that anybody that I meet can teach me something. Whether they're three years old or 13 years old, or 33 years old, or 93 years old, whether they're a male or a female, whatever ethnicity, whatever background, they can teach me something. What if I saw my trials as teachers? I have two things in my, in, in my first 20 years of life that I see as my teachers. From age five to age 28, many of you know this, I was a stutterer, sometimes severely. And stuttering, and trying to grapple with that taught me the value of words, taught me the impact of words. And then when my parents broke up, that became a teacher of, to me of saying, how do I think about relationship? And those two themes, words and relationship, have become sort of tracks in my life as I learned that. How we respond to something that's major in our lives, something catastrophic, makes all the difference. Some of you know the name Bob Goff. Bob Goff was a trial attorney in San Diego who has written books. He, he is one of the maybe top five most creative guys I've ever met. And he is so, he's, he is deep, he is funny, he is, and we were talking one day when I, I met him some years ago. We went to Africa together. And um, and, and he said, you know, when 9-11 happened, which we talked about last week, when 9-11 happened, 
our children were 11, 9, and 7. We lived in San Diego, and Bob had plenty of money, I think, but he said we had no television in our house. If something big happened, we wanted our kids not to get that news from a talking head on television, but we wanted them to get it from us. So we sat down with our children that night, and this has to do with how people respond to testing. Sat down with our children that night and said something terrible has happened. Described what it was, and we said, our thought is that if we could get the leaders of nations together and talk to each other, we could resolve this or at least speak to this. So kids, what do you think we ought to do in terms of connecting with leaders of nations? And the seven-year-old said, I think we should invite them over for a sleepover. <laughs> and if they can't come to our place, maybe we could go to theirs. The nine-year-old, rather pastoral, said, I want to know where do you, sir, Prime Minister, President, where do you place your hope? And could you give us a message of hope to take to the next leader? And the 11-year-old, she was into videoing stuff, and she said, and I'd like to videotape that so we could take it to the next guy. So he said, we created a mailbox. We went to a website, downloaded all of the contact information for 207 sovereign nations leadership, and we sent them all letters, 207 letters. And we waited and waited, and the first hundred responses were no. And the hundred and first response, or whatever it was, the first responder who said yes was the president of Switzerland, and then the prime minister of Bulgaria. Altogether, 29 national leaders responded to their request for a sleepover, or whatever it was, right? Well, none of them could come for a sleepover, but they said, why don't you come to our place? I, I love that there are several stories connected with it, but when they met the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, they walked in and here he was in his residence, and he said, you know, I have been more nervous about meeting you children than I would be meeting about meeting the President of the United States. And when I get nervous, I like to eat. So, <laughs> clapped his hand, the doors flew open, the waiters came in with trays of burgers and french fries for the kids. All in all, 29 folks. And at the end of their little meeting, because they all wore blue blazers and khaki slacks and whatever, and they came up with a little box and they gave to each prime minister or president they met with this little box. And inside was a key to their house in San Diego. And said, if you ever come to San Diego, we'd like you to come and stay at our house with us. Several people came, ambassador from Bolivia, the head of government in Uganda, they came to their house, and the first thing they did, they had this key on their keychain, and they put it in the door, and they just wanted to know if it would work, because they wanted to know if it was true. Can you imagine, those kids are now 20 and 30 years old, in their 20s and 30s, can you imagine the capacity to look back to that moment of responding to stress and anxiety, and have that as a model for how we respond in times of stress. Because trials are a test. They test our faith. That, that's what James says. They test our faith. Why is faith such a big deal? Well, faith is, a, is the spiritual muscle on our journey with Jesus. That's, that's just what it is. Listen, Jesus is confronted by some critics after he's fed 5,000 people back in John 6. 
This is the question they asked, John 6, 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? That's a great question. That's good. Jesus answered in the singular. The work God requires is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Two questions explain where we are in our entire world today, not just in this nation, around the world. Two questions. First question is, what is true? And the second question is, who do I trust? Trust and truth are blended together in the letter from James. Who do I follow? Who do I trust? And is he really the way, the truth, and the life? Nothing works without trust. You've heard me say it. You came in here, sat down, absolutely trusting. You say, how do you know that? You can't get inside my head. Well, you sat down on those chairs. You trusted those chairs. We're trusting that we're not breathing carbon monoxide. We're trusting that if there's a fire over there somewhere in a hallway that we call the fire department, we can't see them, but we're trusting they'll come. Our whole lives are built around trust. And so trust is a muscle that needs to be stressed uh, some weeks ago when I talked about God the artist from Psalm 139, there's that verse 13 and 14 in the middle of that psalm that says we are knit together in our mother's wombs. We are woven together. And when God Almighty does that, he gives us at least 650 skeletal muscles that helps us move around like this and wave my arm and work my mouth. All that's musculature at work, you know. I'm not muscle bound, but I just got those muscles going just like you do, right? And muscles grow in several ways. Hormones help them grow, all that kind of stuff. But one of the biggest ways muscles grow, and you know this, is by applying a load of stress, like this. This is what you call a kettleball. And you do this. Or you can do this. Or you can do squats and do this. All right? Now, every time you have a trial, it stresses your faith muscle, your belief muscle, that money thing that's not working, that family situation, that teenager who's just stressing you out. You are a teenager, and your parents are just stressing you out, you know. <laughs> and we get into another situation, and the faith muscle is stressed. I get in another situation, I can't figure out what's going on at work. Why that person sees me the way they see me. I haven't done anything to hurt them or be against them. And the faith muscle is being stressed and built. And what happens is it breaks down in small ways. It breaks down the muscles that are, have an extra load applied to them. And I rest the next day and they heal and the muscle gets bigger and stronger. And then I can do it again. Today, we spend big money on going to gyms and fitness center for rec. If, if you were brought up on a farm, you didn't have to go to a rec center. <laughs> All you had to do was get up in the morning at 3.30 or whatever it is you did to go milk the cow. And every day was a workout. Lifting, hauling. Testing makes me resilient. Testing makes me resilient. And that's the theme of today, that whole people are resilient. Whole people are resilient. Here's the definition. Resilience is the ability to recover quickly from difficulties, to spring back into shape. Toughness. Resilience is toughness. 
And you say, but how can I have pure joy, intense joy, when I'm just surrounded by this stuff? I mean, half the time it scares me. I mean, that's my authentic feel. I feel scared. I feel pain. I'm worn out. I don't feel Jesus, okay? I'm, I'm down so far I've got to pull down my socks to look around. You know, it's one of those things. I love the story of the little kid lying in bed and there's a thunderstorm going on. You know, we have those roll through here every once in a while. He's just a little guy. And there's the flash of lightning and the crash of thunder. And he calls out, Mommy, I'm scared. She said, Honey, it's okay. It's just passing through pretty soon. I'm within a second. Another flash of lightning, crash of thunder. He said, Mom, I'm really scared. And she says, It's okay. It'll be all right. And then a huge one rattles the house. He said, Mom, I'm so scared. And she says, Johnny, Jesus is in there with you. And Johnny calls back and says, how about I come in with Daddy and you come in here with Jesus? <laughs> I love that story. I just had to fit it in somewhere. That's it. The testing of faith builds endurance. People who are in it for the long haul. Testing of faith builds endurance. Perseverance in the face of challenges is, is challenging. When we get a test, we want to run. I want to run, and God says, be still and know that I am. When I was 40 years old, I was president of a small college on the coast of California, and a faculty member came to me. His name was Dan Albright. He was a runner. He's now with Jesus. But he came to me, and he said, how about running with me, President Foth? And I said, well, how far? He said, oh, a couple of miles. I said, I'm 40 years old. I'm pretty fit. I said, I can do that. And I so I went out and I ran that first day. I got about a quarter of a mile and I was gassed. I was sucking air molecules through my teeth and it took me six weeks to run a mile. Six weeks. And how Dan would do it, he, I, I'd be really tired. He said, I gotta stop. He said, let's just go to the telephone pole. And so we'd get there. He said, well, actually I meant the next one. And he'd do that to me for six weeks. And one time I said, you know, I sign your check. Anyway, the point is this, <laughs> that, that after six weeks, within a year, I was running three miles or four miles, and then for 10 years, Dan and I, several times a week, ran five to seven miles. And you know the result of that endurance? You know the result of that tension and that stress? Pure joy. Pure joy. It's, it's not only a response, it's a result. So, life is not a 100-meter sprint. Life is a marathon. Steeplechase, if you will. Enduring makes us whole. Give me a scarred person any day of the week if I want wisdom. Give me a scarred person. They may not look like much. Give me somebody, as the Western writers would say, who's been down the river and over the mountain. We have a friend, Ruth and I, named Charles Greenaway, who used to say, we'd say, Charles, how you doing? He said, I'm going to make it. Not going to look like much when I get there, but I'm going to make it. We live in a day when these questions are asked. So what have you done? What have you achieved? How much money have you made? What's your net worth? Those are the common questions that people have. How about this question? What have you endured? That's the question. Listen to how Paul reflects on endurance when challenged in 2 Corinthians 11 with apostolic 
his apostolic authority is challenged. This is, he doesn't give a treatise on why he's better than they are. He just says this, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea, constantly on the move, in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger in sea, in danger from false believers. I mean, I know I should read Paul because he's an anointed apostle. I'm going to read him because he's got creds. If I have to choose between creeds and creds, I'll take credentials any day of the week. And then he goes on to the church at Philippi. He's writing from prison, and he says this, blessed is the one who perseveres under trials. Excuse me, I jumped. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then James, further down in this first chapter, this first part of the letter that he's writing, says it this way, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. At the end of my life, my earthly life, I'd like my prayer to be this, Jesus let me be like you, scarred and whole. If I could take you with me today, and I'm closing with this. If I were to take you with me today, I'd take you to Fairview Memorial Park in Santa Ana, California. That's in Orange County, some miles south of L.A. I've told you this before, but that's where my mother was buried about 11 years ago. Her body lies there. She was buried at just past 100 years of age. Gwendolyn Foth, born in Central California. About 100 feet from her is the grave of another woman. She was the first licensed watch repairer in the country of Holland. Her name is Cory Ten Boom. Some of you know that name. The Ten Boom family during the Second World War hid Jews in Amsterdam, and the Nazis found them and put them in concentration camps. Corey's father and her sister both died in the camps, and Corey, I think, would have died, but she was in a camp called Ravensbrück, and she was let out by a clerical error, put that in quotes, and went on to inspire millions of people around the world. Lots of suffering. But on her grave, there are three words. Jesus is victor. And when asked about her faith one time, she said, we don't know that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. Faith that endured all the way to wholeness. Trials are always going to be with us. It's a given in life. God says, why don't I use that to make you fit followers, <laughs> buff believers, I don't know, right? Strong servants, why don't we do that? And let his grace work in us in that way. Hear it one more time. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I'm for that. Let's pray. If you're in the sound of my voice this morning and you, um, you say, you know, you talk about faith, but uh, I, don't, I don't think I have any of that. I'd like to have that, and I'd like to start today. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray a thought, and in your hearts as I pray this, as I speak to God Almighty on your behalf, just in your own heart and mind, say this with me. I'm surrounded, God, by trials that feel like they're taking me out. And I trust you this day. I choose to trust you this day with those things. And I begin this day because of Jesus to trust you with my life. I don't know how that works or how it's going to work, but nothing I've tried has worked and I choose to trust you this day. And for those of us who are people of faith, you're on that journey, but you're weary. Pray this in your hearts with me, if you will. Lord, I'm so tired. Refresh me, Spirit of God. I choose to stop to let your life well up in me like a spring of artesian water. I choose this day to one more time drink your water of life. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.